When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Pressing on. Yes, I'm pressing on. Well, I'm pressing on to the higher calling of my Lord. Many try to stop me, shake me up in my mind, say, prove to me that he is the Lord, show me a sign. What kind of sign they need when it all comes from within, when what's lost has been found, what's to come has already been. Well, I'm pressing on. Yes, I'm pressing on. Well, I'm pressing on to the higher calling of my Lord. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Fee Wheel and Rob Kelly, and I am truly honored to have a very, very special guest for this episode to talk about Pressing On from the 1980 album Saved, author and critic David Wilde. Hi, David. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I've, I've wanted to, although I probably acted like I didn't. I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, <laughs> I, I I clearly had to wait till we there were only Christian songs left. For, <laughs> right. as, a, as a Jew, I insisted on waiting till there were only Christian songs. <laughs> this worked out perfectly because this is and we will get to it. This is one of my all time favorite Bob Dylan songs. This song uh, we will we will get into the details of it. Uh, of course, uh, any of you, all of you listening to this are familiar with with David's work. Uh, among all the different things he's done, he's also written the liner notes to a Bob Dylan live album. And boy, do we have to talk about that. Uh, but that'll be later on in the show. But David, let's let's start at the beginning. Like, how did you become a fan of of the man's work? My memory is that I fell in love with Dylan and fell in love for the first time at the it, it's all together in my mind. I was a girl named Laura Wharton, who I actually just sort of all of a sudden, like, uh, I'm a I'm a Twitter guy. Uh, at Wild Dot Music. I love to tweet, but I sort of have never quite done Facebook, but I had a page because when I was in that 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that CNN series, they made me to promote, they gave me like an authorized Facebook page. But I sort of, this girl literally, this ex-girlfriend, a girl, she's not a girl, clearly, uh, look at me, uh, don't. <laughs> but in any case, she started like liking pictures of my wife and I recently. And I'm like, but it reminds me that, yeah, we, I think I was like 13 and we were fell in love and fell in love with Dylan together and quoted every lyric and like blood on the tracks was like my like 13, 14, my first love. I don't want to say how far it went, but it went pretty far. <laughs> and so all of it is my love of Dylan is wrapped up with my love of, you know, love. So it's, it's deep and abiding passion but the uh the then i never saw him until the street legal tour uh, and at madison square garden in the worst seats in the house next to a guy who screamed zappa the whole time for no good reason he just (laughs) kept on screen he was so messed up screaming for zappa uh but then uh to get to sort of where where we get to with this song uh i went away to uh My parents broke up. Everything went crazy. I was sort of sent off to prep school to try to save my then collapsing academic record. And uh, I went to a prep school in in Windsor, Connecticut, near Hartford, called Loomis Chafee. Great school. And around that time, uh, Slow Train uh, Train Coming came out. Right. It instantly became, and I think still is, 
my favorite or just it's always been a deeply one of my favorites. So I went to see him alone at uh, the Bushnell Theater in Hartford in 1980, May. Uh, I went for this for this preparate to prepare for this very emotional moment. I went and found the set list because I'd always had the memory that at that show, that's when I heard pressing on Mm -hmm. and I looked and he ended the show with pressing on, which the album was not saved, was not out. Uh, And he was on that tour. I think it's actually, when I think back on it, that was like height of sort of preaching Bob where he was really, he was, you know, he was saying things like, I can remember things he said that night. Like, uh, I, at least I remember him saying, I bet you want to hear like a rolling stone and you're not getting, and uh, I bet you want to hear it ain't me, babe. And times are changing. I'm not going to play any of those songs tonight. And, you know, he was sort of being provocative, which was fantastic. <laughs> and there were ladies handing out little mini, little mini Bibles outside the theater. It was just, it was wild. And I think it was one of the greatest things I ever saw. Interestingly, I reviewed it for my, uh, the paper at Loomis Chafee. And I, my memory, I get, I cannot confirm this, was that I won second place in a like high school journalism competition from the Hartford Current. I wonder who won first. Yeah. Because <laughs> who beat me? I'd like to know. I'd like to shake their hand. But in any case, that was my, my memory is that, uh, and it was true. He ended his show. The big, the big hit encore was an unreleased pressing on. And I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. Then I remember being, uh, ironically, for a Jewish kid, I was working at a summer camp, uh, YMCA summer camp that next summer in uh, Connecticut. And I remember, you know, playing Saved nonstop. And always, it's like always been a record where I have a mix of deep love and discomfort. And it's like, because what I actually think now in retrospect is that was like the period, like that's a different, Slow Train Coming was like a theoretical thing he was exploring and then i think saved was where he went deep like he made a gospel record he was it was fire and brimstone bob for the for to a significant degree and yet uh i i just have that song i have always loved and uh i'm always happy when i realized there were other because there was a period where with saved especially it wasn't like I, I was aware of anyone else around me who liked him. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely not in the Jewish kids from northern New Jersey. There were not a lot of us, you know, preaching the the virtues of saved. But I, I, I just loved. Uh, I think you from one of the past shows. Like there's certain songs like "Covenant Woman." Oh, uh, that's I lo- beautiful just, woman. Beautiful yeah, song. in my head that's sort of tied to uh, where I'm not quite sure if there's a certain sexism to it. Kind of like. Is Your Love in Vain from Street Legal? Like, mm-hmm. there's certain songs around that time where he's like, it's a little uncomfortable, but beautiful. Just mm-hmm. beautiful. Well, that, that's sort of fascinating to me because I, I haven't had a chance to talk to that many people that were there when the conversion, the literal conversion happened. And it's easy for a fan like me that came along later to regard the born again period, as people have called it, as a, as a thing that he went through. But I mean, what you you obviously were okay with it, sort of the, the, that radical change. And I mean, you were you had just become kind of a fan, and then he makes this hard turn. But you were you you didn't regard it as some sort of negative change. You liked it from from the beginning. I always instinctively loved it, and I don't know if it's just genetics, but my older son, who is named Dylan, is his middle name. That's how much 
of a fan I am. And uh, I can tell you a story later where Bob like was like, you got two boys now, right? To me, I go, yeah. He goes, uh, and he wrapped cookies for them, black and white cookies, <laughs> like uh, deli cookies. He ordered them from room service at this hotel that we were meeting in where he was staying. Even though he lived in L.A., he was staying in a hotel. Not very typical uh, Dylan, but yeah, he was uh, in any case, we can get there if you want. But sure. uh, like I, I name, I, I have always loved that era. My son, a recent college graduate, is also his favorite stuff is the Christian stuff. And hmm. and I'm not religious either way. I think Bob believes in both old, every testament I think he believes in. He's just <laughs> right. like an all testament kind of all the time guy. Uh, I'm a sort of no testament guy, but I'm moved by the music and I... I thought about this just last night because I was listening to the record and I think pressing on in particular, maybe that's the reason that might be my favorite of all is that I think there's a lot of truth to it. It sort of captures why he was doing this. And the answer is he was lost. Like Mm. I, I had, I spent enough time with him and had like, I'll tell you about the first thing he ever said to me. Well, in person when we had a um, sit down meeting, but, I, I have the definite sense that he has very been very much motivated by as much as he obviously and I also watched No Direction Home, which is on Netflix recently, and I realized, okay, he wanted this, but once he got it, he had no interest in everything being projected on him. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted it's like when he said he was a song and dance man, I think that was true. It's like even when Little Richard died recently, like and you realize oh, he wanted to be Little Richard. He right, did not right. want he did not want to be the spokesman of a generation and which is crazy because he so clearly, you know, was such a poet, but I think he, he, and in my experience, he has a natural like desire to just not to be projected onto that much. You know, mm-hmm. I think he projected his, he created himself, but he didn't want other people projecting onto him to any degree. And, the thing I now feel as a guy who's middle-aged or <laughs> later and, uh, and, and now listening to him as opposed to when I was like a teenager and hearing the Christian stuff at first was it's the most beautiful thing that he wanted to make a leap that he it, – it's it sort of – he was lost and he was trying to find a way to press on. Like, and, you know, there was a divorce. There was that ugly – uh, incident, I think, when they were fighting over Jacob and all this stuff. And I don't want to get into it. I don't know it exactly. But I think he had lost his way, you know. And uh, and I, the fact that Bob Dylan, the coolest cat in history and the, to me, the greatest writer, bar none, any, in any field, he's my favorite <laughs> writer of all time. The fact that he could, A, feel lost, admit that, and try to find meaning in something uh, like I, I'm arrogant enough. I don't think I'm going to find it in religion. I think there's something beautiful that he wanted to be, you know, uh, almost uh, subservient to something mm-hmm. to serve. Some, he wanted to serve somebody, right. you know. And uh, <laughs> right. that's what's funny. Is I remember the album cover of Saved. There was criticism of it. I never. It always made me highly uncomfortable. The original cover. Right, the original painting. But, yeah. Yes, but I think someone said it looks like God is not. Like, it's not him reaching out to God. It's God pointing at him like, hey, this guy's good. Let me save him. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm, I'm generally touched by the humility, the humility of the Christian era, which there's contrary aspects to that. 
But at the heart of it, I do think it's it's beautiful to hear him trying to find a way forward. That's interesting that you mentioned being humble because that, that makes me recall an interview I read, I don't know, about five, ten years ago with um, Emmylou Harris. And and she they started talking about different things. And then they got on to Bob Dylan and she mentioned that one of her favorite songs of his is Every Grain of Sand, oh. and, and which is a masterpiece of a song. And she talks yeah. about how humble he sounds in that song. And the person interviewing her, I don't remember who this was, obviously had never heard the song and obviously had not heard any of Dylan's Christian music because he said something like, I have a hard time believing Bob Dylan ever sounded humble. <laughs> and, and Amy Lou Harris kind of like doesn't want to make the whole article about that, but kind of says, Oh no, 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 he really was. And that's, I think it's very interesting you say that because yes, it is amazing that someone of Bob Dylan's enormous gifts and probably, you know, a huge ego, how could he not have one? The spokesman of generation could, as you say, sort of hand himself over to something that he thought was bigger than himself. It's, it is an, an, an incredibly uh, sort of uh, humble, I use that word again, humble act to do. And then, and then to be able to make music that is so powerful, like, you know, he wasn't a dilettante. He really did it. Uh, that It's just, it said, it's just amazing that he was able to create music that powerful within this framework of like a gospel kind of sound. I have two stories about, whether he's humble or not. And again, right. like many things with him, there's a duality to this. My great, my longest time I ever spent with him was a four, four hour meeting. I just wow. sat with, it was unbelievable. He wanted me to write a treatment for an idea he had. And it was, I don't feel maybe it's right to give too much detail. Sure, of course. At this late date, but it was after 9-11. I had written, I was a head writer for the Tribute to Heroes, the telethon. He had liked something about that. And he, so we met and, I can only tell you that whole idea of never meet your heroes. He will always be the least disappointing hero I could ever have. Like that was five hours. He could not have been funnier, <laughs> uh, more down to, I, I, I would say down to earth, but also like in terms of brainstorming with him, it taught me something. I, I, I learned why he's a genius uh, because he does not, his mind takes leaps that no one else's would. And <laughs> I literally, we had a great like three, four hour hangout session in the middle of it. I took a, what is now a canceled call. I would have to cancel it now. I had to call Kevin Spacey in the middle of it because I was writing a John Lennon tribute uh, at Radio City, which was the first show after 9-11 in New York. I had to go take the call and go tell Kevin Spacey. And the best excuse I ever gave anyone was I said, uh, Kevin, I'll, I'll just tell you like quickly what I'm thinking, but I have to call you back. And he goes, why? I go, I'm with Bob Dylan. He went, okay. That's, that's, <laughs> sure. a, good, that's a good excuse. Yeah. Like, it's also like amazing that Dylan was like, yeah, use my bedroom. Like he literally <laughs> said, uh, and I will say, I did also have a moment where I imitated Bob to Bob. Oh, which was, boy. Which was about uh and i don't know if you've gotten into this movie at all hearts of fire the we have one of the, not, not one yet of, gotten to that yet. yes not to one of the not one of the high points artistically no, but for no. some reason because this was a project we were talking about him and what in, in a certain level it, it was sort of a pseudo documentary that involved acting which when i saw the scorsese recent project and sort of I, I realized okay i can see bob's mind in here uh but I, at one point I was describing, I said, it's like that fight scene in Hearts of Fire, which is a terrible fight scene, you know, with him and Rupert Everett fighting yes. over Fiona, 
you know, uh, some, something, every time you say it, I can't believe it actually happened. Yep. Uh, yep. Yep. But yep. at one point I imitated him. He goes, what fight scene? And I went, this fight scene where you go, Ugh! and I went, Oh my God, I just did a bad Dylan to Dylan. And he laughed and he was friggin', he was fantastic. He was just, again, so kind. He did literally as, you know, as he was, as I, we were wrapping up, he goes, uh, you know, half an hour to go, he goes, you got boys, right? You got little boys now, right? I go, yeah, yeah, I got two boys. One's uh, named after you, so uh, a lot of pressure or whatever. He goes, let me get him some cookies. And he called down to room service and got, like, black and white cookies and put him in a big hotel napkin, which I'm sure he got charged for. And uh, I took him home. I wish I had kept the napkin. The kids definitely ate the cookies. Wow. Uh, were they good? The kids liked them? They were them? good. Yes. Oh, good. So that, All right. That's the humble Bob. Uh, I will also say when I walked in the, when, I'm sorry, I was let into his room and he was out doing an interview, ironically with Michael Gilmore for Rolling Stone, okay, my magazine okay. that I was still affiliated, uh, with very much, but he walked in and I hope Michael won't mind this, but <laughs> he walked into the room, he goes, eh, David, like we were close, which we weren't. Uh, I talked to him on the phone a few times, uh, which is another whole story, but, uh, oh, but on the, uh, he walked in and he went, Oh my God, David! People still ask me why I went electric. How interesting! (laughs) What? And then when I was watching No Direction Home the other day, I'm like, "Wow, the whole friggin' thing is so it's it's so pivotal." But I, it's one of those things that as a long time, I'm sort of a journalist who turns into a TV writer and producer, and I'm now aware of how much artists like artists who live for 40 years doing interviews or 50 years doing interviews they're tired of every question that they've been asked a million times and yeah of course and, but he was like how interesting like it was this it was a great insight and so when i interview people still sometimes i'm very conscious of that but the opposite of the humility which is also it, it's funny and charming to me was there was a time when uh we had Dylan and Springsteen on the same Grammy Awards broadcast. And I write, you know, as a writer on the show, I had to write intros for each of them. And that year, I, I, was, I think Springsteen was doing um, uh, Pete Seeger. Like, it, he was sort of debuting his Pete Seeger tribute thing. So I wrote this long intro, which was for Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks came in to rehearse it, and it was like a long thing. And I went through it with Hanks on the stage of the, you know, uh, uh, Staples Center and he ran through it said okay this is great and then Springsteen came in next and he looked at the intro and he goes David I can't live up to this I'm like what he goes this is two paragraphs pick one so I had to like <laughs> cut it down to one and like send it to uh, Tom Hanks but then I think it was just John Mayer and for with Dylan it's like I had the opposite instinct of where it fit in the show to say I said John May or someone, I wanted him to just say, here he is, the archetype, or here he is, you know, something as a songwriter to pay tribute to the, the best of all. And uh, Dylan came in to me and he went, uh, give me a little more. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I was like, I, was like, I feel like I was like the tailor to my two heroes. Like I'm a, I'm a guy from, I'm from New Jersey and, uh, and I worship Dylan. So it was quite a day. Springsteen wants it a little shorter. Dylan wants it a little longer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm just, and I'm a Jewish tailor trying to make them both happen. 
Well, that that is that makes me feel good to hear that because I mean, look, I know I'm never going to meet the man, and that's fine. But I've always worried, what would I do if I if I ran across him? Like I'm, you know, I'm in a. There's that photo of him that you've that that's gone around of him in like a blimpy at like presumably three in the morning reading the sporting news, and like that's how we figured how I'd run into him. I'd be walking into a Seven Eleven one night, and oh, there he is. There's the tour bus or something like that, and and. You know, that's that makes me that makes me feel really good that, that these interactions with him were 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 not only more they were more than pleasant they were actually a lot of fun. I see. I think he would love to run into us in a blimpy. I do, <laughs> uh, and plus the sandwiches are fantastic. Oh, but that. he, um, I think what he doesn't like is like the people who are still trying to get him to stop wars or you know mm. or tell them what religion. I, I think I think he has. No interest in that. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, well, that well, makes total sense. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, well, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to recoil all the names you've just thrown at me. I'm trying to recoil from all that. I mean, so uh, let me, before we get back on to, to pressing on, I do want to ask you just a, just a little bit more about that, that meeting with him. So like when, obviously if Bob uh, wants to have the handlers or the managers in there with him, they're going to be there. But is that is that something that he sort of specified? Like, obviously, he felt comfortable with you to just just be the two of you, and there weren't like this phalanx of people that were. There was of- no one. There was no one there wow. um, for hours and hours. And uh, but he is. I mean, it's not that he's not eccentric. Like, uh, sure. Okay, here's here's another. Do you, do you have time for another? Crazy Absolutely. Story? So I moved here. I'm sitting here in L.A. in the hills, and I moved here in '91, and I was doing my first cover story. Uh, for the magazine in LA was on Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker. So, and, and through Tom and Howie Epstein, who was my groomsman at my wedding from the Heartbreakers and wow. who, who loved Bob uh, and Bob loved him. I had some other crazy experiences, but at this point I met, I got to know Tom and I love Tom. I think he's also like Springsteen, uh, Dylan and uh, Petty. Those are pretty much, defining artist for me and uh but in any case i wrote this cover story on dylan i requested i wrote an email i think or was it was it a phone call at that point i don't know this is 91 or 92 and uh i asked for bob to talk to me but bob didn't talk and i call him bob because we're that close now i call just to save time <laughs> right uh, in my name drops but uh so i wrote a i made a request to talk to bob about tom and uh i finished this article handed it in. It was pretty much at the printer. And I went and drove to a motel, like a real motel divey kind of motel in Malibu for a long weekend because I had to write liner notes on, I think it was Aerosmith, like a box set liner notes. And I figured I'd, I'd have a little beach weekend. I, this is before I met my wife. I had nothing but time. And uh, <laughs> I had a t- So I went out and I, I, it was like a motel, no restaurant, no nothing no pool just like it was like up the hill from the beach in malibu so that was pretty cool and you could walk to some a couple restaurants but in any case i got to the hotel and there was a call in the main like to the hotel and i was called to the front office and it was someone at rolling stone an assistant saying bob dylan just called (laughs) i said what he goes yeah uh and so i called uh I think it was Jeff Kramer. Uh, Jeff Kramer, right. Yeah. Um, and they said, okay, Bob wants to talk to you. Uh, call Rolling Stone and tell him to hold the presses. <laughs> and, uh, and 
don't leave your room. <laughs> and he goes, I go, so when is he going to call? They said, in the next two days. So literally, <laughs> for the next two days, while I'm paying for a beachfront, like, not a beachfront, but a beach motel, I couldn't leave the room. There was no restaurants. There was, this, there was no Uber Eats or uh, anything like that. <laughs> so I literally, I had to have, like, friends come and deliver sandwiches, and I just sat in this room. And eventually the phone rang and it was, uh, the phone rang and he goes, uh, David, <laughs> go, yeah, me, Bob. Um, and I went, Hey Bob, uh, I just wanted to ask you about Tom because, uh, you know, people always compare Tom to you. And I wonder if you hear that connection that, you know, that influence. And he went, me, <laughs> me, no, you got the wrong Bob. He reminds me of Bob Marley. And I went, what? And then, so I, I think I, I got a few more good quotes out of them. I called the magazine. They put it in the, they actually held the article for that. And I had a friggin' Dylan quote in a petty cover story, which was, you know, I was thrilled with. And it was only years later, like a year later when I got to know Tom well, I think I realized, I think it was like a cosmic pot joke. Like, mm-hmm. because the thing that connects Tom Petty and Bob Marley was like, a lot of weed, right? <laughs> and at least, at least, maybe Bob saw it on a deeper level. But I, I, I tend to think it was a, a funny pot joke. Um, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and 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 to your, uh, yeah, we can talk about the liner notes later. But yes, those are some of my Bob moments that I treasure. And well, uh, that's just it's unbelievable. It's <laughs> just unbelievable. So that's uh, oh my. Okay, so. So like you said, we were we were here to talk about pressing on, and you mentioned earlier about how you saw him live, uh, saw him do this live before he ever did, before the album came out. And this this album does stand unique in Dylan's history in that it is pretty much the only album he's ever recorded after he already played all the songs live. Uh, obviously, when he started doing the 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 Born Again shows, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, he needed more than just the nine songs on Slow Train Coming to fill out a concert if he wasn't going to play like a Rolling Stone or Times Are Changing or whatever. So we had to have, had to come up with a bunch of other material, and so we had a lot of the save songs all ready to go. And those he, those were the concerts; those were the, the and plus a bunch of other songs that never made it onto to either record. Cover Down, Breakthrough, or Ain't No Man Righteous, No Not One, and stuff like that, and then a lot of covers. And so this album stands unique in that it's it's after uh, all those songs had been played live, and it's the the big knock on Saved. And David, I'm curious as to what your view of this is. The big knock on this record is that it's uh, the, the the term I hear the most is tired. Is that the versions he did live were so much more passionate and 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 alive than the ones you hear on the record, and that seems to be the big knock on saved and and i think the reason uh, pressing on remains one of my favorites is um while i'm not an expert i haven't heard dozens of live versions of these songs i think pressing on it seems to be the one song to me that is the the best version in my opinion is the one on the record i've heard some live versions i've heard some alternate versions but to me it's the record one where he really nailed it yeah i agree i have a weird feeling about um saved where it's almost like he in fact the next record, Shot of Love, didn't he? He did like the title track with Bumps Blackwell. Yes. Richard, yes. Like, producer. And I think there was a certain, it's like, what's super weird about it is Slow Train of Coming is one of the best sounding records he ever made. Mm-hmm. And that Mark Knopfler, maybe Mark Knopfler had something to do it, but it had a sort of sharpness that, you know, I was like a kid who, I sort of, it wasn't that long after I fell in love with Dylan, I fell in love with the first Dire Straits record. So I liked 
that sort of like very articulated sound. And it was, uh, what's weird is the same Jerry Wexler and Barry Beckett. I don't know if it was Bob's like not wanting to do many takes or like was Bob getting his hands more on the controls, but it just, it's muddy. And it's like, I can, I think it's like he was making a record that sounded like for the gospel market. Like, Mm. and, and later gospel became a more slick, but I mean, black gospel, like not, not like, uh, you know, you know, later eighties sort of slick pop gospel. I I think he was really trying to make something muddy and Southern. And it, it, it's almost like, uh, I find saved is where as shocking as his transformation was on slow train, the record sounded so beautiful. It sort of eased you into it, but I think saved was almost confrontational lyrically that cover. It was just like, it wasn't giving any quarter to Mm -hmm. pop. Uh, and yet I think it's interesting. Both you and I just can't deny like a song, like covenant woman, or to me, like, what can I do for you? Like there's things like that that just kill me. Uh, interestingly, when I looked at the, I listened to the album when I was writing some liner notes today on some other record. And I realized like, even though I know in the garden pretty well, like, Saving Grace, like, I realized I never, when I would play the record, I would just keep playing Pressing On. Like, Mm -hmm. I would, I would play it once, and I'd take it off the needle. So I think I never, like, when I hear Saving Grace, I'm like, I don't really remember that one. (laughs) After Pressing On, and, or I'm sorry, Pressing On is like the first side two, is that right? Yeah, it's the first song in side two, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I just always started on side two, and then kept going back to Pressing On. Uh, uh, I just, yeah, it's, and it's interesting because, like, uh, when you see that movie, I don't know if you've dealt much with I'm Not There, that movie. Uh, uh, no, I have not covered it on the show yet. I've certainly seen it. Um, because there, people love that John Doe version, and I had not seen it since I saw the movie. And I, uh, on YouTube, they had just a clip of, it was Christian Bale breaking into John Doe singing Pressing On. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's going to be terrible. And it's like, no, actually, John Doe sang it really, really well. Like... Uh, like two 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 white guys who can actually do gospel. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, no, I agree with you. The version on the album, it's still the highlight of the album. It's uh, and it it stands apart. It just uh, it, it 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 it's like it's literally a song about moving on. But I find it so moving to this day. It never, it's never not moved me. Yeah, I, I the other as much as I like a lot of the other songs on Saved, and I really like uh, a Satisfied Mind. I like Solid Rock. I like Saved. Uh, they all sound again this, to my untrained ears. They sound very controlled. Um, and and this one, the pressing on to me, it sounds like what I think people really liked about the concerts was that they had this crazy wild energy, and then especially in the second verse. Uh, I already I quoted the initial verse and then the then the, the chorus, but then you get the second verse, which is the shake shake the dust off of your feet, don't look back, nothing can hold you down, nothing that you lack. Temptation's not an easy thing. Adam given the devil reign because he sinned, I got no choice. It run in my vein, and then he goes back into the chorus, and it's that part where the song seems to build. Like if you hear the you can hear all the musicians kind of it's building and building and building, and it feels like it might. This, this particular train might run off the tracks. I think it's that tension that makes this so exciting. And, and I have mentioned on 
uh, previous episodes where we've covered some of the born again songs is that I'm not religious. I, I was raised Catholic, but I abandoned it as soon as I could. Uh, and I've never been uh, religious in any way. And so these records, the not only the, you know, aside from just the music being beautiful, I am able to transpose the, the, the sentiments into something that's meaningful to me. And I can't imagine the, the, the lines here, the shake the dust off your feet. Don't look back. Nothing can hold you down. Nothing that you lack. I mean, that is like every, that is who can't relate to that. Who, who can't, who, who doesn't want to be told that at some point in their lives that nothing can hold you down. There's nothing that you lack. That is the fact that he's able to put something like that in the song and is so universal to me, that's what makes this song one of my favorites is that I never tire of this song, but I never tire, especially of those two lines. I just, they make me almost cry. They are so powerful. Well, also don't look back. Him saying, don't, don't look, look back. back. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, I hadn't quite ever thought about it in those terms, but I, I have just a weird feeling about him. And when you watch, like there's a little documentary stuff that's come out from the gospel tours or even right. some podcast. And when they talk to some of the background singers, you know, I can't even keep up with how he may have had children with at least one. <laughs> I don't, I, who, who knows exactly? But I what I had the experience of like I listened. I, I recently worked on a Prince Grammy tribute and with Mavis Staples, and I've gotten oh. to work with her a few times. And like I like when you hear the stories like Bob proposing to Mavis Staples, like <laughs> what I what I think the reason why Bob Dylan is the greatest artist of all time is that. He made, he, you know, he was, here he is like a white Jewish kid from, you know, Minnesota, Hibbing or Minnesota. Hibbing, Minnesota. <laughs> and, uh, and he willed himself to become the folk artist, the blues artist, the gospel artist, everything that he loved. He wanted to be the real deal and he appreciated the real deal, studied it. Like the way he, these, the new songs that he's coming out where he keeps, like, especially Murder Most Foul, where he references so many people. But like, you realize, like, this is like the greatest student of great music. Yes. Oh, ever. Yeah. Like, like he's, that's what, and that's the same core. That's where I think he is humble. He's a student of the art that he loves, even though he's the greatest artist of our times. No one, is a greater fan of the things he thinks are real. And like, I think he found Mavis, you know, they were a gospel group who sort of began to cross over, but like, and it, it's so fantastic when you see these little interviews with some of the women who were singing with him, who were so great. A, a number of them are just amazing, but they all were sort of like, I didn't quite know who he was or, you know, <laughs> I really heard his stuff. And he, I think that's what he thrives in a world where I think the last thing he wants is someone projecting a million things. Sure, I think sure. he liked being like, you know, learning from pop staples and he would have married Mavis and happily studied with pops. I think, uh, I, I just make, that makes me love him more. Oh, I always thought, uh, I always marveled at his theme time radio hour. Cause not, I, not only is that like the greatest music course you're ever going to take, but it, it's like, if you didn't know who Bob Dylan was, you wouldn't know that he was ever a musician because he never right. talks about himself. And over across 50 episodes, he never once mentions any of his own songs. You know, <laughs> like you would just I, think this guy's just really cool. He just loves it. He must have a great record collection, this guy. And a lot of the greatest artists I've met are that way. Um, Elvis Costello, who I got to know for a time, used to call me at the Rolling Stone office and he never talked about him. He talked <laughs> right. about 
he would call and go, and like Howie Epstein, who was in the Heartbreakers, who I got to spend one time we went to New Year's, and he goes, we're going to go hang out for New Year's with Bob. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and then we drove around Malibu waiting for Bob to tell us when to, where to meet, and we never did. <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, uh, all these, uh, oh, but those guys uh, definitely, like, uh, Petty would sit and talk Everly Brothers B-sides with me. Right. Beatles. He before the Beatles stuff was all out, all the uh, outtakes. He would literally George and Ring. I think George or Ringo had given him all the outtakes, everything, and he would literally just sit and play them for me in his house, like a total record geek. Uh, uh, Elvis Costello was like that. I think a lot of the greats are great because they they care that deeply, and you know it's these sort of mediocre talents who only want to talk about themselves. Like right. I am, like I am right now. <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah. I mean, I can imagine that 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 Bob is probably yeah. He would love to talk about some obscure things or whatever. Then that's that. And I, I I've noticed lately that it seems like he's really been doing these interviews with like American Songwriter Magazine and stuff where it's like it's more about the craft of him as a songwriter rather than sort of Bob Dylan, the the famous person kind of thing. Uh, and I, it feels like maybe that's where his mind is at here. And so, so pressing on again, I just think I love this song. I just think it's, it feels to me. I mean, I heard the, um, the alternate take that he recorded that was on the trouble no more box set yeah. and it's, it's good, but it, it just doesn't to me, just doesn't have that energy to it the way this does. And that's what this thing, this song to me just pops off, off the, uh, off the record. Now, Live wise, uh, you mentioned having him, seeing him, seeing him do it. He only performed this song 65 times. Uh, that's it. Uh, and never from, since 1980, right? Or something never like since 1980. So this was basically part of the gospel tour. And then the minute he started working in the, the older songs and they started doing that blend where he was doing some gospel, some covers, and then, you know, the occasional older song. This was just dropped, and he has never gone back to it. And that is, to me, that's tragic because this song is so good. And, I mean, I know the man only had so many concerts. I mean, unfortunately, now he's not doing any concerts. But, I mean, he digs up so many songs. I mean, in the last tour, he played When I Paint My Masterpiece, which a lot of people didn't think they'd ever hear him play. To me, it is so tragic that this song has not been unearthed once in a while by him because to me, I mean, maybe it's because he doesn't have the backup singers with him anymore and he feels like it wouldn't, it, but I would love to hear some sort of new version of this. Cause I just think this song is so powerful. I'll go even further. There was a period when he was doing all the Sinatra stuff. Right. Before we knew that he was recording again, that like, I think I gave, I did some, a project, a little project with uh T-Bone Burnett. And I was like, come on. Make another Christian record with them. <laughs> like, like, and I guess Tebow may have had something to do with all of, you know, I, I don't know. And I, I, no one's going to tell me uh, the truth. And, uh, but I, I, I wanted that. And what's weird is I, when I heard Murder Most Foul, it had a sense of stakes. Like, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, the Church of the Poison Mind or the Church of <laughs> the, church of the uh, of the JFK conspiracy, but it, it felt like intense and interesting and it kind of had some of the mystery. He was, he was reboarding that mystery train for another mm. slow train coming. I, I don't know how, you know, I'm so excited for this new record. I, uh, I was going through the early days of uh, the pandemic were really pretty, I was a little scared. I had actually been with Rita Wilson and 
uh, right when she got sick. And, you know, I, I worried that I had a cold at the time. And then <laughs> two artists who I love died. Uh, one, John Prine died just after. Oh, yeah. uh, but John Prine, we were honoring him at a Grammy PBS show. Like, and I'd just been with him a few weeks earlier. And Adam Schlesinger, who's a Jersey. Oh, right, right. Mountains right. of Wayne, who I had just seen Valentine's Day and who I love, love him. So I just remember when Murder Most Foul appeared, I, it was literally like it helped me through a very dark time because I literally mm. was like, my son who loves Dylan, like I, I saw it online. I'm like, because, you know, I don't remember anything that Bob tweeted. <laughs> yes, know, yes. I don't remember anything that was of note, really. Um, and I tweet about him constantly. And, uh, but it was like literally like a, I, I, I thought either, I mean, my son, it was, it was, didn't it come out like around midnight? I think it was yeah, midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He get all those songs, he's been dropping them at midnight. They were, he would tweet out, not he, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, BobDone.com would tweet out some sort of cryptic message an hour before midnight. And you'd be like, what? What's that? And then boom, there's the song. Oh, no. And, and I remember like literally as we're like, you know, worrying about real people we know and worrying about ourselves, like my son uh, and I were like debating, is Bob okay? Is this like, <laughs> it was actually, it was, it was like, I was scared. Like, is this mm-hmm. like, I got to make my last statement. And uh, I had heard from people who knew people, Bob was done recording. And then he said something like, right. Then he say, this is uh, something I did a long, a while, a while back. Yeah. And I wonder if that's even true. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe it wasn't a while back. Who knows? As we all know, you can lie on Twitter. That doesn't, yeah. <laughs> there's, it doesn't, doesn't well, I'm matter. A testi- I'm a testament to that. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really quite, uh, quite nice to hear from him and know, oh, okay, he's okay. You know, he's fine. He's holed up in that big house of his in Malibu, presumably. And, and he's, and now we know we got a whole other thing going on. Um, I mentioned that you know, he seems to have sort of just completely forgotten about pressing on. And you mentioned that there was the John Doe cover and I'm not there. And a couple of years ago, or probably like 20 years ago at this point, there was the, the gospel songs of Bob Dylan cover album. Uh, and that song pressing on is on that record by the Chicago mass choir. Uh, and so I'm, I'm happy that other people, uh, you know, remember it, you know, I mean, this song is not, is not entirely forgotten, uh, oh. maybe, you know, other people love it and remember it and are covering it here and there, which I gives one, it, it's going to yeah. let it last forever because as, as it should. Well, I have one more shameless name drop that I'll <laughs> go right ahead, which was years ago, right in, obviously before he died, I interviewed Ray Charles mm. and he's, he was a, I mean, obviously one of the greats of all time and a fascinating guy to talk to, uh, an interesting uh, theme amusement park ride. He was, he was very, very interesting. Like one of the only guys I ever asked for an autograph. And one of the only guys who logically said to me, goes, I'm not going to sign anything. I, I'm blind. I could be signing a check. <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, fuck, I'll sign your, uh, your genius of Ray Charles album. Power of uh, attorney he's handing over to you. Yes. But so then I, I've worked a lot uh, over the years with Quincy Jones, who had, had Ray signed his label still at that point, like quest, I think. And, uh, I, I, I had a, in the middle of the night, I woke up with this idea, an album called Bob and Ray, which was <laughs> Ray Charles. And it was all Ray Charles singing the gospel, Bob Dylan. Oh, wow. And I wrote it out. I picked the songs 
and I went and I pitched it to Quincy. It's the only album I've ever <laughs> wanted to, it's the only album I ever said I ever would produce or want to be involved in. And he, he liked it and he checked with Ray or something. He goes, Ray just wants to make, because I, I tried, Ray just wants to make a jazz record. Like, oh. uh, uh, like, ah, shit. And I still, to this day, like, Pressing On was the last song on that. And I still want that song. I still, maybe, you know, in heaven with Ray, assuming either one of us are up there, <laughs> I can produce it then. That, oh, that, oh, that sounds amazing. It would have been... That would have been. I I do love uh, that that record because if anyone who hasn't heard that record, the Gospels got to serve somebody. The Gospel songs of Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is on it with, uh, Mavis. with, with Mavis Staples doing a completely rewritten version of "Going to Change My Way of Thinking," complete yeah. with comedy sketch. So yeah. if you have not heard that, go dig that record out because it. I remember the first time I bought that CD because I knew Bob was on it, and then when it gets to the point where there's the comedy sketch, I'm like, this thing is breaking my brain. What's happening? Like Bob's doing knock knock jokes. What? What's happening here? He does, so like, he does it all. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, pressing on. I just, I think it again. I, I, I the, you know, the, the the general consensus on Saved is that it's it's sort of a failed record. I don't. I would argue there is no failed record of Bob Dylan's. There's only matter. Maybe maybe knock that loaded. But I mean, there, there's no real failed records. Um, maybe it would have been better. You like the Christmas record? I love the Christmas record. I yeah. do. I, I think I, I remember you like that. Yeah. I, 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 that's my bridge too far. I never made it. I, I have to go back to it. I didn't, I didn't get into it at the time. I, I, I can't, I can't, I'm like, it was for charity. You know what I mean? Like, even if it's not great, it's for charity. But, um, the, the, the one thing that was interesting is that I read about was that apparently right around this time, Bob presented Columbia Records, now Sony Music, but pre- presented Columbia Records with a finished live album of the gospel tour and it was going to be called i think either saved or solid rock or no it would have been called saved this is saved it was going to be called solid rock and they passed on it they were like no apparently saved was not a commercial success after slow train coming was a huge hit uh i mean he won grammy he won his first grammy for it i mean it was a big big record and then this one kind of fumbled so when he went and brought them the live album they passed on it and that breaks my heart to know that there is a basically finished live album of the gospel tours out there somewhere sitting in a vault and you know, we've never really heard it. Maybe we've heard bits and pieces over the bootleg series over the years, but that boggles the mind that, you know, Bob would present them a live album and they would go, nah, no, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. Bob. Yeah. I, it's when I was watching uh, no direction home and then listening to some of that trouble, no more box, right? Like to me, it's something I noticed as a going to many Bob shows over the years, like the, some of the best shows I saw were in out of off the grid a little bit. Like mm-hmm. he would be better at the uh, state fair in Pennsylvania than he would be at, you know, Madison square garden or like the, you know, uh, an arena in LA. That's just something I, in fact, the best show I ever saw, maybe. About how many have you seen so far? Can you I, even count? I think like it's gotta be in that 50 area. Okay. Uh, and, but I don't think I've seen him in a few years. Because the last one, I will ne- I don't know how I can beat it. Because okay. um, it was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, more than a couple of years ago, I guess, like uh, five years ago or something, four, four or five years ago, we were making a trip for my wife's birthday and for the kids' summer vacation to Italy. We'd never taken our kids to Italy. And 
my wife uh, looked up what was happening in Rome on her birthday. And there was a, we, we made a reservation for some food tour walking Rome. And then right before we left, she called and said, uh, I just found out there's no food tour on Sunday. Like, we can't do that. So I looked up what else is happening in Rome. Bob Dylan is playing the Roman, the Roman bass of Carcalla, which is like, it's like, it's the Roman bass. It's not a venue. It's like, it's the bass. And I guess during the summer, a couple, like a couple of major artists like Elton John or Dylan will play like what's usually only an opera facility, you know, in the middle of, uh, out, out of the, on the, on the, on the outskirts of town. Wow. And, uh, so, my wife goes, get tickets. So I called management and I reminded them, I never invoiced you for that treatment 12 years ago. So here's, here's my invoice. I need four good seats for free at the Roman Bass of Carcala. And they, we, we got them. But I, I, and it was, I, I still like on my computer, the background picture is of that show. And it, sitting with my son who I named after him. And my wife and my other son, who weren't as thrilled as the two of us, but still, it was magical. You know, it was just an unbelievable. And and I, I'm sure this has been discussed, but like I've seen Bob through every, you know, from literally from street legal tour where it was, you know, uh, sort of going a little Vegasy, right. all through the Never Ending tours, and this current incarnation of the band, it's like he's fallen back in love with. I think he's fallen back in love with live performance. And like, it's remarkable that after as many shows as he's played, I, I, the, that was the best I've ever seen him. It was just spectacular. And no, he didn't do pressing on. <laughs> no. Like if I could put together the set list, he did as part of my invoice, I should have said, and you have to do precious angel from slow train. Coming. Oh, it's another beautiful. And, song. uh, which I think is, again, that's the one where I'm like, did he just retrofit a love song to be about God? I don't know on that one. But it's like a beautiful love song. Which is, you know, Covenant Woman's kind of like that. It's kind of mm-hmm. like I love the lusty born again stuff. Like they're, you know, uh, it's it's sexy, you know. It's uh, in any case that. But I, I'll never get over that show in Rome. Never get over. Wow. It. Oh my goodness, uh, that's fantastic. Well, all and right, free. and free and free <laughs> and free on top of it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So okay, you you mentioned Madison Square Garden, so that's a perfect segue to the other thing I absolutely need to ask you about. Because, of course, you wrote the liner notes to the Bob Dylan 30th anniversary concert uh, release when it was put on CD. And I was at that show. Uh, we were so high up. I don't think we were technically in U.S. airspace anymore. But we were, <laughs> we were there. We were there. So where were you? What was your vantage point when you were at that show? And uh, how did you end was, up writing the liner notes for it? First, I was, uh, I think because I covered it for Rolling Stone. And it was crazy because... Little things like here's what my the crazy things are. My vantage point, I had all access, like, and I was on this. I was walking with Howie Epstein from the Heartbreakers because remember Tom and the Heartbreakers did License to Kill on that, right? Right, and, and rainy, uh, rainy day women, yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, Howie's or was already one of my closest friends, so we were just at one point walking on the side of the stage because he worshiped Dylan too. And we're standing on the side of the stage, and Chris Christopherson is next to us, and we're talking to Chris. And that was when Sinead O'Connor went out oh, and, boy. and got booed. And we were standing. It's like the three of us on the side of the stage. Sinead walks out like shell-shocked. And 
Chris being Chris Christopherson, like just took her into this hug yep, yep. <laughs> and comforted her. We were no good. At, we were just like standing there with, we had, we were not comforting her at all, but it was, that was a crazy moment. I remember um, I had moved to LA in 91 and I was hanging out at the office of Virgin records. Uh, Sue Sawyer was the head of publicity and her assistant was this really nice, uh, adorable, charming young lady and she we you know we were just talking and she goes my boyfriend's band uh is coming out soon uh and she handed me an advance and it was pearl jam and this was eddie vetter's girlfriend beth at that point uh and so i knew eddie from that like from before pearl jam came out a little i mean i'd met him then and so then cut to eddie vetter is then like the coolest guy in the world at madison square garden you know and I just, I've never seen anyone go from, because that was only like a couple, a year or two later, he was, you know, singing, he was being, sitting there with Clapton and George Harrison and Tom Petty. It was remarkable. And I, I ran into him not that, a couple of years ago. And I talked, I talked to him about that because it was, I've never seen anyone go from zero to 90 that quickly. <laughs> uh, and then I remember sitting in the stands during dress rehearsal and uh, uh, I remember George Harrison and Eric Clapton, like giving each other shit. And I just then like, <laughs> like then like just taking a second to process, like, hold on. This is like Layla time. <laughs> this is crazy <laughs> that the two of them are, you know, it, it, so yeah, that was an overwhelming thing. And then, so I think after I wrote whatever news story I wrote, I got a call saying, Bob wants you to write liner notes for this collection. And, and what I remember, I cannot remember if it was management or Bob, I think it must be management, communicated to me, uh, Bob has only one request, no adjectives. I went, what? <laughs> I said, noun, Bob says nouns and verbs. And <laughs> as a writer, I've always said that was the single greatest lesson I've ever heard. Like, and if you look at Bob Dylan's work, I'm not saying there are no adjectives. There's, there's a couple a million, of adjectives. Yeah, there. come on. Yes, no, but there's there is a he does not go generally for extra adjectives. He goes for <laughs> nouns and verbs. It's sort of it's. I think one of the great writing lessons of all time is like remove extra adjectives. And I think if it's also like him, adjectives, nouns, and verbs are more based in fact. I don't think he likes being pigeonholed or described. And that's what adjectives do, you know. He doesn't want to be, you know, uh, he doesn't want to be genius. He doesn't want to be amazing. He doesn't, you know, he wants to be a guy who sings and dances, nouns and verbs. That's I, that's my reading of him. All right. I got to jot that down because I write things sometimes too. That's a, probably good advice. It's, it's, yes. No, 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 no adjectives. All right, cool. Yeah, I am excited. It, it's, uh, I, it's you know. better than any class you'll ever have had at Trump U. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, so, well, that, that is all, I mean, that is all just amazing, David. Uh, I mean, just again, I, this is a guy that I've been worshiping for, for, and I even hate to use that word because I'm sure he would hate to hear that word, but just absolutely he would hate it, but it's, yeah, I, I, I use it all the time. Worshiping the work. Let's put it that way. Worshiping the work, which is what this, this show is about. It's not about the man. It's about the work and worshiping the work for 25 years and just the idea that you get to interact with him, uh, in that regard is, is just amazing. And like I said, and this song, I, I, it, it really felt like uh, fate and that when you suggested what songs you wanted to talk about, you had a bunch of great ideas, but when you mentioned this one, I was like, Oh my God, that's 
no pun intended. That's perfect because I love that song. It's, I would put this on my top 20 Dylan songs of all time. And it's not a song that gets requested hardly ever by my guests. So this was just, it lined up perfectly. So, uh, I mean, thank you so very much for doing this. This was a huge, huge honor. And I really enjoyed talking with you. And so again, just thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Oh no. Thank you so much for having me. No joke. I, uh, I was listening. I have, uh, in this weird moment, like there's like, uh, I'm, I walk the Hollywood Hills early in the morning before it gets hot. And I've been listening to a lot of the podcasts. Uh, I love podcasts, but your show really helps me. Cause it's like, I, I, I have too many political podcasts that make me tense at the end. Uh-huh. And Dylan, Dylan just makes me happy. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, and it's not like he's like a glad handing artist who was, you know, it's not like a, it's not walking on sunshine. Right? No, <laughs> but it just gets you. I think that's actually why I think he never liked like the spokesman of the generation thing mm-hmm. or the political. I think he avoided in many cases being, you know, a political viewed in a political lens because I think he likes the things that are deep and real. And that was a large part of why I think the gospel thing felt, it never felt fake to me. Mm-hmm. It feels, right. It always felt, uh, it, it's sincerity probably bothered some people, you know, and it's, it's like we live in a time I, I've often sit, thought that, and I know you want me to go already, but I'll just, I, I'll keep going. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Talk as long as you want, David. No, but there's artists of his exact age. And I somehow think like in comedy and in music, they're the last ones who don't feel the need to be ironic. Like mm. as witty, as much wordplay as there is, as much as he changed what a song could be about, I think at its heart, like he probably pissed off some people or made them uncomfortable with the sincerity of those lyrics. And like, and that to me, it's the opposite. Like I cannot believe that my greatest hero, the greatest writer of all time is writing a song saying, in essence, I'm lost and I got to keep going. Like, uh, and I'm so moved that he, that he did press on because, you know, this is a guy, he presses on, and still plays for people like there is no one with, with less financial need in terms of <laughs> right. their publishing because he's, he's a smart guy. It's it's like a selfless act of, you know, a, you know, that true spirit of communicating like a guy who's so private, who still wants to publicly share his music. It's like what could be more beautiful? Yeah, absolutely. I, I said it was just, of course, his birthday just a couple of days ago. And I, uh, I'd say, you know, it's, he's the one who gives, you know, he, we're, he, we're, we're, we all owe him, but he's the one who gives. He just keeps giving and it just never seems to end. And like I said, there's a new record coming out. It's just amazing. You, you mentioned, uh, hearing, hearing Murder Most Foul at the exact right time. And I sort of felt that way about, uh, False Prophet. Uh, when the show we did about False Prophet, my guest Tara Zook said she felt two inches taller hearing that song. And I was like, yeah. That was it. Exactly. And that song has such a, a great kind of swagger that it made me feel. And it was like, that was exactly what I needed. So thanks, Bob. You oh, know, no. thanks. Thanks for that. Oh, no. And I, I think about leaving his hotel room all those years ago. And like I left like I don't do drugs. That was as much of an out of body high that I ever have had. Like because part of it was like, again, like why he's a genius and I'm not like I on the ride home and hours later, I was still figuring out 
what he was saying because <laughs> it was I, I think his his he, he was very easy to talk to, easy to get comfortable with, but also his mind is remarkable. Like I I literally took hours to catch up. Uh and I'm sure in many ways I never did. Uh and I never will. But you'll I'll spend my life listening to this music. Like and the fact that I already have a son who's like out of college who feels the same way. He just like this is the that's what's weird is like he'd hate it, but it's to you and me and my son, it's it's gospel. It's mm-hmm. like it's it's Talmud and for me, you know, it's like studying Talmud or something. It's like there is there you can find anything in these songs. And uh that might have been what pissed people off about saved is it's almost like that was the closest he ever came to telling you what the songs were about. He was, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, other than, you know, there was, he was trying to sort of eliminate the mystery and that might've bothered people. Yeah. Right. As you were saying this, all this stuff, all the, the, the born again stuff would be easier to dismiss if it did seem like he was faking it. Uh, you could just write it off and say, well, I mean, clearly he wasn't doing it for his, uh, financial benefit because you know he was really ticketed in the teeth by doing gospel music right at, right around this time but but yeah i mean it, it because it seems so uh um, true and honest yeah i would imagine it was hard to dismiss maybe from some of his friends that he knew or whatever but yeah this this song i again i love you mentioned mentioned precious angel that's another song i just love covenant woman that's another masterpiece of a song, Every Grain of Sand. I mean, there's just the guy never stops. No matter what period he's going through, he never stops coming up with classics. And this is pressing on is again, it's one of my favorites. And it just does it makes me feel like I can do anything. And yeah. uh that is that's that's an incredibly powerful thing that he can convey over a record that is 40 years old at this point, uh, you know, with, with the, with the new album cover art, which is not as good as the original one or whatever, but I mean, it's, it's just amazingly powerful. So again, thank you so very much for, for doing this. Do you want to talk about what you, what you're working on or what you have coming up? Uh, I feel like I've talked enough. I mean, I, (laughs) I'm mainly a TV, uh, I'm mainly a TV writer, producer, you know, on, uh, Grammys and all sorts of shows like that. And some of those are like, a lot of them are going uh, virtual right now. So I'm doing things like, you know, uh, calling artists and making them like directing them shooting on their iPhones. For right. Them. Right. And things like crazy, you know, uh, you know, it's just, it's a heartbreaking time. Like, yeah, we were uh, last month, we were supposed to be filming paying tribute to John Prine and, mm. you know, who I talked to about being a new Dylan. I'm like, I'm such a Dylan fan. I've sort of become friends with most anyone who was ever called the new Dylan. Like I, I have regularly, I've seen in this past year, I've been in touch with, you know, John Prine, Steve Forbert, you know, all, I, I try to keep all my new Dylans uh, in line. Uh, that's how much I love Dylan, but no, people can follow me at wild about music and uh, at, on Twitter, if they want to hear what I'm doing. Uh, but it's usually, I, I'm lucky. I, I got very lucky because I fell in love with music because of Bob Dylan in large measure. I have spent my whole life around great artists and uh, I'm very lucky that way. Well, that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing to be able to say. So again, thank you so very much for doing this and thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I have to thank our Patreon supporters of the network, which are Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, and another uh, pledger who remains masked and anonymous and special thanks to my pals, David Ace Gutierrez and Henry Bernstein for this help with this episode. So that is going to do it for this very, very special episode of pod Dylan. Thanks everybody for listening and uh, we will see you later. Bye-bye.